Hi everyone, welcome to the Reitzel Brothers Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Curtis. We are the co-hosts of this podcast. We are investor-focused realtors working with our clients to help them build massive wealth in real estate. This is a place where we talk about real estate investing, wealth, and giving back. Make sure to check us out on YouTube and join our private real estate investor group on Facebook called the Tri-City Real Estate Investor Club. Links are in the description. Enjoy this episode. Jeff Reichel is an active real estate mortgage broker ranking in the top 1% in Canada for the last 20 plus years. His purpose in life is to help and mentor others in all aspects of life and business. And he is a mentor to me too, and I do appreciate that. He has been on 23, 24, 25, 26 humanitarian aid trips. We're losing track to Africa, working with very closely with cured lepers and orphans. Was voted top 40 under 40 in Kitchener Waterloo, was awarded the Pierre Fournier and Five Diamond Awards from Mortgage Alliance. The only person in 20 years to be awarded both that and the Wow Mentor Award for Waterloo Region. Jeff was recently named the Canadian Ambassador to Ghana, Africa, for Possibilities International. We could welcome uh, Jeff with a spontaneous round of applause. Uh, no pressure. So the presentation this Not evening. Not much of a mustache either, from what I can see. <laughs> yeah, well, well, someone asked me, you know, why, why aren't you just growing a mustache? And my answer was, I'm coaching children's sports. You know, like can't just grow a mustache. And uh, I said that when the assistant coach is with me that has an awesome mustache like yours, like a nice full thick mustache. And he thought it, he thought it was funny. Uh, and it's it's actually because I look completely ridiculous in, in just a mustache, so that's why I'm growing my full face. Not that it looks that much better, but it, it, it is a little bit better. So the, the presentation this evening is going to be based off of this book, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And I, did, I had been investing in real estate for many years prior to reading this book and getting into relationship with Gary and, and Dave. The reason that I adapted this to my presentation, a couple reasons. Number one, this book was heavily researched. So Gary and Dave, who are very successful real estate investors... Um, it wasn't based on how they invested in real estate. They went out there and interviewed 120 of the top investors in North America and put their models and systems into models and systems that we could follow. Rather than saying, you know, I have a half a billion dollar net worth in real estate and here's how I did it. They didn't do that. They don't talk about themselves in the book at all. It's how did we do it and what are our best practices? So I liked that and I also liked that this was it. So it was a $25 book that you, can, that you can buy. It was it. There was no weekend warrior workshops. There was no mentoring. There was no coaching. There was nothing else. And I went, well, I can, get, I can, I can wrap my head around that. Because most of us, hopefully, if you're thinking of investing in real estate someday, you can be in a position where you could purchase this book without worrying about what other, who else is going to be in my pocket. Because I can't tell you the number of people that I've come across over the years that come to me to talk about investing in real estate and they don't have any more money because they spent their 40000 on a mentoring program on how to buy real estate rather than just buying a piece of real estate with it. I see it all the time. So I liked that, and I liked the, the models and systems that we could follow this because most of us don't invest in real estate because we don't know how, and there's, there's nobody in our world that is showing us how to do it. There just isn't. There are very wealthy families out there, but who do they talk to? They'll talk to their kids, and their grandkids, which they should, but they're not up at the front of the room 
doing a presentation on it. And that's what really started for my father and I. We started doing these talks because I started investing in real estate very soon after my father started investing in real estate. And we went, well, we have a lot of family members and friends and coworkers that probably also would invest in real estate if they just had somebody show them how to do it. So I started doing monthly talks and we just invited our, our, our close family members and coworkers. And actually the very, well, the very first seminar I did, nobody showed up. My dad, my dad showed up, that was, <laughs> yeah, it. that was it. The second one, I think your brother showed yep, up yep. and that was it. That was it. And <clears throat> Neil, I think came to 42 or 43 of these talks before he bought his first property. So it, it's, and, and that's okay. It's a, that's a little bit more of a process than I think you'd like, but we say it's a process. It's not an event, investing in real estate. So you don't listen to me talk tonight or some other presenter, because I'm sure many of you are getting many different angles on real estate investing, and you should, and you should go to, to listen to whoever you can talk. But don't get all excited and then just go buy something for the sake of buying something. Mm -hmm. You eventually do need to, though, pull the trigger and do something. But don't, don't get all excited tonight and, and just have to buy something tomorrow. But at least start the process maybe after tonight and set a goal. If you're making notes from any of the slides, you can, but you don't need to. You can just send me an email or whoever brought you here at the end of tonight, and I'll just email you a copy of the presentation if you want. So why are you thinking of investing in real estate? If I <clears throat> ask, and I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to pick on anybody in the audience, but if I were to ask you why you're investing in real estate, the answers that I usually get or I would like more money. That's why I want to invest in real estate. And, and I would ask, you know, why do you want more money? And I say, well, I just, I want more money. Most of us want more money, right? We would say, we would agree with that. We want it. Well, simply wanting more money isn't going to attract it into your life. It just isn't. Because all of us in here have probably wanted more money for a very long time, yet we don't have any more. And the reason you don't is because you clearly haven't identified what that money is for. If the why is big enough, the how becomes very easy, and it does. I've lived it for 25 years. If you want something bad enough and you know what it's for, you'll fight to get it. And then the things that happen along the way won't matter. So for me, if I have a, if I have a rental property and a tenant burns 30 holes in the carpet from cigarettes, I get new carpet and I move on. It doesn't, I'm so focused on where I'm going that I can't be bothered by all the little road bumps that happen along the way. And nobody would even know when I have a bad experience in any of my rental properties, because I don't talk about it, I don't dwell on it, I don't look, oh, or poor me. And I probably could tell you two stories over 25 years. It's not that there's a lot of stories, but I'm so focused on the goal and where I'm going and where, where investment real estate has and will take me that I can't be bothered by all of the little stuff along the way. So why am I here? I kind of said that already. I'm here to share my thoughts on money and life and a lot of that, and then investing in real estate. And the reason I talk a lot about the money and the life and the why is you need to have that clearly identified. If you don't know why you're doing this or why you're doing anything, it's very hard to succeed at a high level. It's very hard. Your why could be that you want 43 Ferraris. It doesn't matter what the why is. I'm not here to judge the why. It can all be for you. You want a whole bunch of cars. That's okay. But you've got to want it bad enough in order to get there. You can't just say, I want cars. They're not going to fall out of the sky. So what are we covering tonight? Understanding that you have the power to change your life and more importantly for me, understanding that I have the power and you have the power to change other people's lives through investing in real estate, learning a system to follow, overcoming your misunderstandings. We all walked into this room tonight with our own myths and beliefs on why real estate investing does or doesn't work. We just, we've heard stuff. 
thinking like a millionaire thinks, your big why, your purpose for maybe doing this or doing anything that you're going to do, understanding the power of leverage, and then helping you build your dream team. Because you can't do this alone. You at least can't do it alone at a, at a very high level. You need some people behind you. So the only thing I'm going to talk about actually on this is the first two, which is husband and father. So that's what, it, that's what I believe identifies me more than anything else. So if you don't know me and, and you were to come, we were at a, at a party or an event and you would say, hey, what do you do? My answer to that is about what? Because what I, what I and that just usually sparks a conversation. What I do for a living or to generate an income isn't who I am and doesn't define who I am. I love what I do. I'm really good at it, but I, it, isn't, it isn't who I am. This is who I am. So let me give you a great example. To, this, this was supposed to be tomorrow night, right? It's on, it's on the third Tuesday of every month, and it has been forever. Well, my son's birthday is tomorrow, so I wouldn't be here. <laughs> so you'd be sitting and standing here, sitting here, and nobody would be in front of you. So tonight, it was supposed to be 7 to 8.30, because that's the time we always do. Well, I'm coaching my son's basketball team, and basketball practice starts at 7.45. So I had to adjust this to, to 6 o'clock. So two great examples of that's always first. Now, it doesn't mean I won't do this. As you see, I still accommodated to make this work, but I would never say, well, son, I'm going to miss your birthday dinner tomorrow, or I'll just have the assistant coach run the practice tonight, which he, he could. He's very capable. I got, I got to be there, because that's the most important thing to me. Financial wealth. The book's definition of financial wealth is a little longer than this. This is mine. The passive income to finance your life mission without having to work. Now, that isn't saying you aren't going to work or you won't work. It's you're able to finance whatever your life mission is without having to go to work every day. So this isn't a number. It's not 10 million or a billion. It's whatever it is to you. And I often talk about my mother-in-law here who receives pensions of somewhere between eight and $900 a month in that ballpark. And that's 100% of her income, and she doesn't work. She chooses not to work, because that $900 finances her life mission, which is to watch 18 hours of TV every single day. <laughs> and it just is. And if you ask her, she'll say, that's what makes me happy. She sits on a couch for 18 hours a day and watches TV, takes the dog on a 30-minute walk. It's crazy to me. She leaves the house Wednesday nights to play euchre, and that's it. She's in the house the rest of the time. I visit her almost every day, I bring her a coffee, but besides that, there's, there's nothing. She'll come to like birthday celebrations and we take her on vacation and stuff. But many of you would look at somebody that's making $900 a month and go, they're, you know, they're below the poverty, well she does technically live below the poverty line, she's completely happy where she is. She's able to finance everything she wants to do on $900 a month. So that's good news because you don't, you don't, need, you don't need a million dollars a year to to, to be financially wealthy, in my opinion, you just need to be able to finance whatever your life mission is. So if your life mission is to feed every single human in Kishinawaterloo, well, you're not going to be able to do that on $900 a month. You're going to have to be able to do more. But financial wealth isn't a number. If we took, took um, let's say somebody bought a house in Toronto in 1984. These are real stories. In 1984 for 270000 And now that house is worth $2.2 million. Well, they're, they're a multi-millionaire, but are they financially wealthy? They're still working their minimum wage job or wherever they're going every day in order to make ends meet. Now, they could sell that house and downsize or move to another city and have a lump sum of cash, but just because somebody is statistically a net worth multi-millionaire doesn't mean they're financially wealthy. Would you rather have 
a $2 million asset that's providing no income or a business, or no money in your bank account, but a business that's throwing off $35,000 a year in passive income, whether you're involved or not. I'd rather have the 35,000 than be a statistical millionaire with, that's providing me nothing. So it's just looking at that differently. Because most of us think, well, if I'm a millionaire, then I'm financially wealthy and I'm set. If I can just get to become a millionaire. Well, that's not all, that's not all you think it is. Even if you had a million dollars cash in your bank account and you had that invested conservatively, what's that going to provide you? 15000 a year, thirty, forty thousand a year, depending on what type of conservative investment it's invested in. So this book is dedicated to the men and women who have a passion for their work, yet dream of someday being able to finance their mission without having to work. Dedicated to those who want the biggest life possible, actively seeking ways to finance that vision, and who say or who want to say at the end of the day, I'm glad I did instead of I wish I had. How many of us have ever looked back and went, man, I wish I would have bought that piece of real estate? I can. <laughs> or I wish I wouldn't have sold that piece of real estate. <laughs> I can think of many, many occasions in my life too. And maybe you weren't in a position where you could buy it, but maybe you were. Maybe there was a way to make that purchase work. Maybe, maybe there was. I actually bought a property today. I bought a duplex today. And I typically don't buy duplexes. My, my forte has been single family properties. Could be townhouses. Uh, single detached bungalows, condos, something that a single person or a single family would live in. That's kind of been kind of been my niche. But this opportunity came up on MLS, and the opportunity's been on the market for a while. And in the notes, I saw seller will hold a vendor take back. <coughs> I went, oh, I haven't seen one of those in 20 years. I, like, I really don't think I've seen one of those in 20 years. Property's been on the market for five months. So I didn't get that, and, and I, I bought it. I paid list price for it and it's the list price it's been at for five months. I looked at it as a real opportunity to get into a property. Oh, and the interest rate on the vendor take back was 1.99%. <laughs> so pretty attractive interest rate. So did I pay a little bit more than that property was worth? I think I did. I think I, 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 don't, I don't think the market value was quite what I paid, but I got a five-year fixed rate at 1.99% on a vendor take back. So vendor take back is where the, the, the current seller is, is willing to hold the mortgage on the property. And as I said, I haven't seen one of those in the comments in 20 years on a property. But that has been in the comments on that listing for five months. It's not like it was just appeared today. It's been there for that entire time period. And I went, that's an opportunity for me. No qualification needed. I just need to come up with the down payment, which I can come up with the down payment. And it was, it was also to help out a friend of mine right now that doesn't qualify to get into real estate that it was a good, it was a good opportunity for, for them as well. So people will sometimes look at someone like me and go, well, you've been investing for 20 years. You know, you're probably not buying anything in this crazy market. No, I am. I did another offer on Sunday on another property. I am investing and I don't think it's a crazy market. It's just the market right now. That's just the way it is. I remember when I was buying condos at 85,000 on North Lake Drive in Waterloo 13 or 14 years ago. And realtor that I was buying them from when you're buying an 80, like in this crazy market, you're going to pay $85,000 for a condo. And I went, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's just the market. It's just, just what it is. I think you're crazy for selling me these condos for 85,000. See this realtor bought them at 60,000 a few years earlier and thought, wow, Waterloo condos at 85,000. You're crazy. Like it's an all time high. Well, I didn't think so. So the power of proven models over trial and error. If we look at the, the bottom part here, this is all of us, and we will, 
eventually get somewhere. We'll hit a lot of roadblocks along the way. And the somewhere that we will get is our natural ceiling of achievement. In order, us to, in order for us to break through that natural ceiling of achievement, we need to follow proven models and proven systems. And that's what I, that's what I really liked about this book. It was the models and systems. And what I liked most about it actually was the was a criteria. Was focus on a criteria and get good at a criteria. When they interviewed the 120 of the top, not the 120 top, but 120 of the top investors out there, what they found is they were all focused in one area. And that was student rentals, 100 plexes, duplexes, single family condos, whatever it is, it was one criteria. So if, some, if they were dealing with a sixplex investor, and I came to them with an opportunity to buy a 40-plex, the investor wouldn't even look at it. He would go, well, no, that doesn't fit my criteria. Where if you don't have a criteria, you just look at everything and then start buying the wrong things because you're just willing to look at everything out there. So that same, let me tell you where that, how that can come in handy. That same complex on North Lake, it was probably f somewhere between four and five years ago. So a listing came up in, on North Lake for 110000 and no pictures. And the realtor comments said that you need 48 hours notice for a showing. So instead of going to look at the property, I wrote a cash offer and sent it to the realtor. And the realtor said, well, actually the seller has now allowed showings and there are 13 show. This is before the, the days of like 13 offers on a property. Like five years ago, that stuff just didn't happen. He said, there's 13 showings booked between tonight and tomorrow so can you make your offer good until tomorrow? And I said, oh no, the offer's good till 6 p.m. And I need another property like I need another thumb. So I'm good, Just, but I would take it to the seller and tell him it's a cash offer, 5,000 under list price, he can pick the closing date. I don't need to see the property and don't care what condition it's in. At least give him the opportunity to accept the offer. And I don't need to see the condition that he lives in, neither do the other 50 people that wanna come through. And the seller accepted the offer. Now any of you could have offered on that property. I didn't get that opportunity because I was a realtor because it hit MLS and got emailed to me like it would you if you were a buyer working with a realtor. The reason that I could offer on it and buy it without seeing it is because I knew the product so well. So I owned several condos in that complex. All I accounted for is that it needed everything. So I just assumed it needed absolutely everything. And then I thought it probably doesn't because there's somebody living there. So probably at least has some drywall and maybe a sink and, and so on. So I bought it. I then went to look at it before one of my first trips to Ghana, Africa. And I was there on a 14 day trip. And the day I came back, it was fully renovated. We put it on the market and it, and it sold that day. It was a lower unit, it sold for like 158. They're like 240 now, but it was 158 is what I sold it for. And it set a record for a sales price in, in that complex. Uh, it was an all time high. Now I could buy that because I knew the criteria. If somebody would have sent me a listing on a sixplex in Teeswater and said, this is a really good opportunity, I would go, uh, maybe, I have no idea. I'd, I'd really, but if somebody focuses on sixplex in, in Teeswater, they could take that risk. And I'm not telling you to go buy properties without seeing them or do cash offers. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just telling you what getting focused on a criteria can do for you over time. This is the foundational model of the millionaire real estate investor. So we look at the outer part of the triangle. The criteria is the type of properties that you'll look at and buy. The terms, how you will buy and finance those properties. And the network, the team of people that will help support your purchases. I have, I have clients right now that live out of town. 
So I'm also, I'm a real estate broker and a mortgage broker. I don't talk about that a lot, but that's actually what I do as my, my day job. And one of my, well, not one of, my specialty would be investment properties, whether it's flipping properties or buying and holding or whatever. So this one, this, I have this one couple that lives near Hanover that buys, buys, renovates, and, and sells properties. So they're, they're flippers. And I finance all of the deals they do 100%. I finance 100% of the purchase price, and I finance 100% of the renovations. So if you were to ask them, you know, what's their secret or what's their magic or how did they become so successful flipping properties? They just found me. And you need to find somebody like that too that can finance stuff a little bit out of the box. Now, if you came to me and you're living in your parents' basement and you don't have $1 and you've never flipped a property and you never done, have never done anything, I'm not gonna link you up with one of my investors to finance that deal 100%. There's absolutely no way. But if you've done it a lot, and you have some equity behind you and you maybe own a house and then that stuff can be done where most of us think that you can't do that. You know, you need a hundred thousand dollars in order to flip a property. You don't necessarily need any money to flip a property. There are ways that, that stuff can, this class is not about flipping properties, but I just want you to know that the terms here are, are very important. If you're just walking into your bank or even your broker saying, you know, what do I qualify for? And then just using that, it's not going to get you where you, where you might want to go unless you have really good income and, and a lot of down payment. And some do, and that's great. The inner part of the triangle here is you first need to think like a millionaire thinks. And anybody that's become a millionaire, meaning they weren't born that way, usually their thought process is just a little bit different. There's a lot of circumstance and opportunity there, but it's, they, they think a little bit differently. You then need to go out and buy a million dollars worth of real estate. So if you bought a million dollar building today with no money down, I don't think you should or, or, or could, but let's say you did, you'd be at that second step. You now own a million dollars in real estate. So you've bought. The next step is where you own. So you have an equity position of at least a million dollars in your real estate investments. And then the pinnacle would be where you're receiving a million dollars a year in passive income. Now, I understand that almost 100% of people that start down this path aren't going to receive a million dollars a year in passive income. It's probably as close to 100% as it can get, but it's possible. There are investors in this book that I've met many of them that receive a million dollars a month in passive income. And I had a client that passed away last year that was receiving a million dollars a week. None of it due to me, but a million dollars in passive income every single week after tax was his passive income from real estate investing. Now, when he got out of the war, I. I I don't think he ever, I know, he didn't imagine getting to where he, he was. He was a multi-billionaire by the time he passed away. He was a very remarkable man. I remember taking him to Eastside Mario's here once in, in Waterloo, and he looked at the menu and he said, can we share a sandwich? Like, he couldn't believe the prices, right? <laughs> it's just because of where he, you know, where he came from. That it wasn't, wasn't that he was cheap, he just really, really valued money. But some pretty cool stuff that he's done with his money over time, too. So overcoming your misunderstandings. <clears throat> We'll talk about three personal myths and then five investing myths. So the first personal myth is I don't need to be an investor. My job will take care of my financial wealth. The truth is you do need to be an investor. Your job is not your financial wealth. Maybe a half or one person in this room can really obtain financial wealth due to their occupation. Maybe. <clears throat> You're a, a CEO or an actor or an actress or a sports player or something like that, you can actually, you can obtain wealth if you're able to hold on to it. 
I've known a lot of uh, NHL players and Major League Baseball players in my day that made millions of dollars a year doing their craft and have nothing when they retire, like nothing. They retire, at, not out of choice a lot of times, but they'll retire at 31 thinking they're going to get another three-year contract or another four-year contract, and they don't. And you look at their career earnings and you go, that, that guy made $19 million in his career playing in the majors, and he has nothing. Well, the reason he has nothing is because he was making $2 million a year and his lifestyle was $2 million a year. And then all of a sudden that money goes away and the lifestyle's still there. It doesn't take long for the money to go away. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It, it's your attitude towards money. So if you have no money when you make $80,000 a year, you will have no money when you make one hundred and twenty, and you'll have no money when you make $3 million a year. It won't matter how much money you make. Your income isn't going to solve that. You'll just figure out new ways to get rid of it. You will. Um, my cousin... Cousins, I don't think he's ever made more than $55,000 a year until recently. He's in his 50s now. House was paid for, never had any debt. Kids all went to nice schools, and they were just very, very good with their money. The kids never had any new clothes, but the kids had clothes. There are ways to get it done. Now that his income is 100, well, he's saving $50,000 or $40,000 a year because he's so used to making that, that 55. I don't need to be financially wealthy. I'm happy with what I have. There are many people in this room that can say that. They actually are happy with what they have and they don't need to obtain any more. I'm definitely one of those people. But it's a very selfish way to live because you don't know what opportunities are going to come your way down the road where you're going to want to write a check or where you're going to want to send some kid to school or give you millions of examples. If you don't have the money, you can't write the check. So it doesn't mean that you're, you're supposed to kill yourself right now and work another 40 hours a week so that you can maybe have money someday to help other people out. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're able to obtain more and you're not, then it's a very selfish way to live. Because you might be happy with where you are right now in life. There's lots of people that aren't that could use your help. Uh, lots of people. Myth number three, it doesn't matter if I want or need it, I just can't do it. And the truth is you can't predict what you can or can't do until you try. Five investing myths. Myth number one, investing is complicated. The truth is it's only as complicated as you make it. How many of us in here really understand the, the stocks and mutual funds that we invest in? Okay. Most of us don't. I, I definitely didn't when I was investing in the market. And some people will put their hand up and they go, yeah, I, I totally get it. That's awesome. That's where your money should be, or at least some of your money should be in stocks and mutual funds. If it's something you truly understand, most of us don't have a clue. We meet with our financial planner every quarter or every year and tells us what's going on in the gold market and stocks in China and we go, oh cool. And we just hope that they know what they're talking about. And sometimes they do and, and sometimes they don't. My, my big lesson there was in 2008, right before the market crashed, I phoned my financial planner and said, I want you to sell all my mutual funds. I don't know what makes the market go up. I don't understand what makes the market go down. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. The rim stock beats the street and the share goes down 20%. I, I just, that makes no sense to me. I understand real estate and I understand mortgages. Uh, and to that date, I had never lost a penny in either. So I, I just want to pull my money out and invest in things that I know. And he convinced me to leave the money in because he said the next year was going to be unbelievable. And it was. I lost half my money. It was totally unbelievable. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. I could have pulled the money out. Like I'm a... I'm growing. <laughs> I just, I didn't. I decided to leave it in. And at the end of that year, I'm now down 50%. And I, I phoned him and I said, I don't know what makes the market go up. I don't know what makes it, I don't understand why it goes up or down. I want you to pull all my money out of mutual funds. 
And he said, well, the next year is probably going to be really good. And I said, I actually think it is. I think it is. But I was lying in bed last night and thought, if I had this amount of money to invest, where would it be? And it wasn't mutual funds. It just wasn't. So by leaving it in, I'm choosing to invest. So I pulled it out and the market went up 50% very quickly after that. And then I think it's gone up 200% since then. But it, and I'm not telling you to pull your money out, out of the markets. Not at all. That might be the best place for your money. What I am telling you is to make sure that, let me get some one of these next ones, is to make sure that you're investing in things that you understand. So I remember, um, it kind of touches on number two here. A lot of my friends out of high school took jobs at Research in Motion. And they were, they were making $25,000, $30,000 a year, and they were getting all these stock options, and, and RIM would match it and triple it and double it and do all this stuff. And I went, well, that's pretty cool. You guys also understand what's going on there on a daily basis. I have a BlackBerry. I think it's the, the, the most wonderful thing ever, but I don't understand the business enough. I think you should just be investing in the company that you work for. My wife was working at Manulife at the time, and I said the same thing to her. Like, you put $100 in, and it's, it's just 200 like that? Well, what? Why wouldn't you? Like, that's crazy why you wouldn't to me. So many of those guys, not because they listened to me, because I think they probably would have done it anyway, they, they kept buying stock, and many of them became multimillionaires in their mid to late 20s because they sold their stock before things went the other way. And it's because they were investing in things that they understood. They, they, they were. R real estate is something that I think we can all get to a point where we can understand, but there are going to be areas in your life right now that will, make, that will make sense to you at some point to invest in because they're areas that you can and you probably already do understand in a lot of cases. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example with, I started buying used sports memorabilia. I had no interest in sports memorabilia whatsoever. I don't know why anybody would pay 10 cents for, a, for anything. Like I just, I, I don't, like some guy used it 50 years ago on the ice, okay, <laughs> so I can't use it anymore, and that's worth something, it just made no sense to me. But I started understanding it, and I think one of the first things I bought was, one of the first big things I bought was a Gordie Howe game-used wool jersey from his second or third season, and I bought it for 66,500 US. And I remember my mom, she was here, she went down to her, I said, there's a package that just came to UPS, you know, can you make sure, she opens it up, she goes, it's got holes in it, and there's an invoice here that says you paid $70,000 US for it. And I said, yeah, the guy that was selling it just didn't understand what he had. And she went, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? There's what he had. And I said, well, it, the reason I got it for only 67000 is the person didn't understand what they had. I understand that market. I understand the markings on the jersey. He never got it authenticated. But I knew from the tags and everything, in lining them up with other jerseys from that same, um, that same season, that it definitely was Gordie Howe's jersey. So I was taking a, a risk on it a little bit, but not much. And the guy had owned it for like 40 years. Um, well, I sold that for 125,000 a few days later. And that just sold in auction for 375. This is a few years later now, but it sold for 375,000 US. And it will probably sell for 575,000 again in a, in a few years. What did Kurt Cobain's sweater just sell for? Yeah. Like three or 400,000, I don't know, that he wore on MTV. A green sweater that smells like smoke and has burn holes in it, sold for $400,000. Like so we can look at that and go, that's crazy. Or we can go, huh, no, that actually kind of makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. So how do we determine value on something? What makes something worth something? It's if somebody else will pay, right? It's, it's if somebody else will pay for it, right? If somebody else thinks it's worth that, then it's worth that. 
So my boys, we were on a cruise recently. And actually, this is a couple years ago now. And I was telling my boys that money actually doesn't exist. Well, it kind of does. But you can just, it's all made up. And you can create money out of thin air because it doesn't exist. And if you want some, you can just go create it. You can go to work and, and uh, spend an hour of your time and make 30 bucks. You can do that too. You can also just create money out of thin air. And Josh said, I don't believe you. Give me an example. And I said, okay, we're having dinner right now. And I said, there's an empty plate in front of you. What do you think it's worth? And he said, well, I don't know, like a couple dollars. And I said, maybe $5 that plate's worth. Now let's say Barack Obama was sitting beside us and he went, scribbled on it. Now what's that plate worth? And my son said, well, I don't know. I said, well, you can't use it anymore. So it should be worth nothing. You can use it, but you probably won't because Barack Obama signed it. That's probably worth $575 is what that plate is now worth. So where'd the money come from? I don't know. Where did that money come from? I have no idea where the money came from. Did it come from somewhere? You have now something that you could sell for $575 that you just created out of thin air because it doesn't exist. And my son went, how do we get like Barack Obama to sign some plates? <laughs> you know, like, how do you do that? You know, that's crazy. It's not, it's not really there. It's created. If you own a semi-detached house right now and you bought it on Bankside for 350000 last year and it's now worth 400000 where did that $50,000 come from? Did the bank go print more money? They didn't. But now your house is worth 50000 who else's semi is now worth $50,000 more? The next door and the next door and the next door and every other semi in the city. So where did the money come from? It didn't. It's just created. And that, that's cool. What's cool about it is some of us think that there's this much money in the world, and if Jeff has that much, then I can't get any. Right? He, he's, got, he's got four rental properties, so those are four that I can't get anymore. It just isn't so. There's, a, there's enough out there for all of us times, times a thousand. So it's good news. Um, number three about risk and in investing. It's true if you look at the, the dictionary, it says that there's no risk in investing. There's risk in everything. The type of real estate investing we're talking about, specifically that I'm talking about, is buying a house or an apartment building or a duplex and renting it to a nice person. That's the type of investing I'm talking about. I'm not talking about buying up land between here and Guelph, hoping that, this, that the zoning changes and houses can be built. That's, that, you could look at that as investing, but that's, that's speculating. And if you have deep enough pockets, you can go speculate in a whole bunch of areas. But what's the return? If you bought a, a vacant piece of, or a farmland between Kitchener and Guelph, how much money are you making on that every month? Probably nothing. Maybe there's a farmer on it that's still paying you something to grow his crops on it but you're, you're definitely losing money every single month for the last 40 years, likely. But if you bought a whole bunch there and then also bought the two farmlands where the Sunrise Center is and you know where Iron Needles Boulevard, all the, the, if you're doing stuff everywhere and you go, okay, well, three of them are gonna work out and seven of them aren't, that's okay if you have deep enough pockets to do that. Speculating is not the type of real estate I'm talking about. Maybe you get to a point where you can speculate or want to. Myth number four, successful investors are able to time the market. The truth is, in successful investing, the timing finds you. You just can't be a secret investor. You need to let everybody know you're thinking of investing in real estate or that you do. You're going to listen to all of the naysayers out there, and that's okay. Just don't, just don't listen to them. Most of them aren't even valid to speak because they either have never invested in real estate. Most of the time, it's just somebody that, that had a friend, that had a cousin, that had a lawyer, that had a client, that a tenant ruined the property. That, and then it's, 
now you shouldn't invest in real estate. Or it's somebody that bought a property 25 years ago, didn't buy the right property, had a bad experience, and now you should never invest in real estate as well. If you want advice on investing in real estate, go find real estate investors out there, people that own real estate. If you want advice on the mutual fund market, go find people that, that invest in the mutual fund market. But make sure the person you're talking to is valid. You need to ask, you need to ask three questions deep. Don't just, because I find the ones that are talking don't have anything. Like they literally have never invested in real estate, but they're thinking about it. You know, and they're telling you about this duplex deal over here and this triplex and this single family. And then when you drill down, they've never owned anything, but they're fixing to someday. You know, it's like, okay. We just don't listen to, you can't listen to anything that they say because they're not valid. Now, if you talk to another investor, he goes, well, I've owned a duplex for five years and, or two years and here my experience. Well, listen to that person. They're, they're valid, you know. Myth number five, all the good investments are taken. I hear this one a lot. I just bought one yesterday and did an offer on another one on Sunday that's, that's in sign back. But I hear this all the time in this market. Well, all of the good investments are taken. They are if you think they are. They're not if you think they're not. And you might just have to look at things a little bit differently, right? You might be used to buying <clears throat> townhouses on XYZ Drive. And now those townhouses are 550,000 and the rents haven't caught up yet, so that doesn't make sense right now. Maybe you need to just look at a different product within the same market. Maybe it's a duplex you need to look at or a duplex conversion or a triplex conversion. You might just need to look at the market that you're in a little bit differently. Or at times you need to go to a different market. If you're downtown Toronto and nothing makes sense, Maybe it does in Milton, or maybe it does in Mississauga, or maybe it does in, in London. I'm a big fan of investing where you are if you can, but you may have to go to different areas. And going to different areas isn't going to Detroit. I'm a, I'm a huge Detroit fan, but it's not going to Detroit just because houses are $45,000 in Detroit. That's not reason enough to go somewhere else. I remember going down there five years ago with a, a real estate investor that, that I respect in the States just to look at, at properties there in a couple of the suburbs. And she said, Jeff, it's great. You know, 85% of our tenants are Section 8. And I didn't know what that was at the time. So I said, well, what's Section 8? She goes, they're on welfare. We get paid directly from the government. I went, that's really bad. If 85% of the tenants here are on Section 8, that's really bad. No, it's really good. No, it's really bad. Because the $45,000 house I'm paying $45,000 for is going to be worth $44,000 next year. And then $44,000 the next year. And then $42,000 the next year. That's, what's, that's what happens in those type of economies. And then I started driving by boarded up schools everywhere. And I went, yikes, this is not good at all. And you can't, <laughs> you can't what I learned is you can't put a for rent sign on, on, on a property because the copper and wiring disappears the night you put a for rent sign on because they know the property's vacant. I go, wow, like this is not good. And I said, I'll just say her name was Susan. I said, Susan, what happens when you need a new roof on, on this property? You know what happens? You put a tarp on it because you can't spend $15,000 on a roof on a $42,000 house. And when a window breaks, you put a board in. And that's just what's gonna, that's just what's gonna continue to happen until something changes in some of these areas. So she just looked at it from a cash flow perspective and went, the cash flow is really good. And that, that's okay if that's what you're looking for and it's enough cash flow, then, then maybe. But I, I like to invest in an area where the property has the potential of going up. Not that it will for sure, but there's at least indicators that the economy is, is more than Section 8. So money is good for the good it can do in you. If you've known me for any length of time, you'll hear me say this all the time. It's, to me, the purpose of money. Money is good for the good it can do. I have every 
everything about money to me is completely positive. Many of us grew up and it was the root of all evil and, and blah, blah, blah. It's just very positive to me because money can do wonderful things. So can you, but, but so can money. So this was my very first trip to Ghana, Africa, and this was in, in the summer of 2013. I woke up one day in the spring of 2013 and just started questioning all kinds of things in my life. My wife called it a midlife crisis, but I said I'm only a third way through my life, so it can't be a midlife crisis. Um, but I questioned everything, you know, from, from why am I here to why do I believe in this religion? Why do I eat the way I do? Just, just why? And I think it was good I started questioning things. So my friend Sam Welton, who run, who's the executive director of Possibilities International, I donate, I was with him today for a couple hours. I donated money to his charity for years. Like I'd, I'd sponsor a kid to go to school or somebody to build a well in a community, whatever. But that's all I'd done is just donated money. And he posted a trip for Ghana, Africa. And I went, I've always wanted to see elephants and giraffes and lions and all that stuff. I've only ever seen cockroaches, but that was kind of my vision of Africa, right? It's just safaris and all this stuff. So I signed up for my, for my first trip and then asked my wife if I could go and she said yes. That's a good because I already paid for it. So that, that first trip that I was there, uh, the first five or six days I didn't sleep for a single moment the entire time I was there. I was awake for five solid days. So a lot of coffee but it would, and Diet Coke. But it was, um, what, what affected me the most was every area I went was a different level of poverty. What affected me more than the poverty, though, was how happy every, everybody, almost everybody was in every area that we went. It just, it just was so foreign to me. It, didn't make, it just didn't make sense how they, like, they live on garbage, like burning garbage dumps. Gleefy is a burning garbage dump. It's half the size of Kitchener, and it's, a it's where our garbage goes, our e-waste and all of that stuff. And it's always on fire. It's just burning 24 hours a day. Everybody there dies of, they don't know, it's cancer, that they die of from breathing and all of this stuff. And everybody's happy. And when they, of course, not everybody, but compared to us here, everybody's happy. The, the rural villages that we go to, which I think I, I don't know if I have a picture of a rural village here. I don't. Where everybody has the same mud hut and straw roof. Those are my favorite places to, to, to visit because they genuinely are happy that their needs are all met. They, they have a sense of community and food. There's not a single electronic. There's no running, there's no electricity anywhere. And it's just that nobody's told them they shouldn't be happy. And they should be, they're, they're fine. Yet I come back here and we're on anxiety medication and we're spending three hours a day driving to Toronto to go to our jobs. And, and I went, what, what's, what's wrong with this picture? Maybe there's some truth to less is more. That's one of the things my, you know, my mom taught me when I was growing up is you should be happy with what you have. And you know, I, I agree to that to, to, some, to some degree. And I'll talk about that in a second. This here was the, one of the orphanages that I went to. Um, a William, a little boy there, I went to the Coca-Cola bottling company of, of Ghana and I bought bottles of glass Coke for all the kids. They were like a dollar. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It was 50 bucks in Coke. And William's walking around with this Coke for the whole day. And I said, William, are you going to drink that Coke? And he said, well, no, I, I'd like to just wait. And I said, oh, come on, let's go, let's go talk. So he said, um, last Christmas, that's what he got for Christmas was a bottle of Coke. So it was that meaningful to him, this bottle of Coke. To me, it was just a drink. To him, it was like Christmas morning again. These children here have all been abused, abandoned, thrown in ditches. That's most of their stories. That's where they come from. And if you went up to Ebenezer and said, Hey, Ebenezer, how are you doing? He would go, I'm blessed and highly favored. That's how they talk to you. And it's just, 
They found him in a ditch eight weeks ago, and he's telling me he's blessed and highly favored to be here. And I went, wow, like it was just such big stuff with him. But I, I, never, I never envisioned 20 years ago that I was going to want or need to be in a position to help these people out the way that I have or help people out here the way that I have. I didn't, I didn't know that. So if you're thinking, well, I'm good for retirement and I'm good with what I have, there might be situations like this down the road where you want to help people out. It'd be nice to be in a position where you can. More so than money, because money is the least of what I do here or in Ghana. The money is, is the, 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 actually the least important factor. It's being there and being with the people and providing people hope that don't have any. This woman here, Charity, she actually just, she just passed away a few months ago. She was kind of head of the leprosarium, so she's a cured leper. So she hobbles around on the ground. She can't see very well. Her, she has stubbles for fingers. She has no feet. And this was my, my first trip there. So I'm just, we were sitting down singing songs with her and I, I put my arms around her and she pretended to kiss me. Someone grabbed a picture of it. And then the caretaker came over and said, I forget the, the, the years, but had said that she hasn't been touched by a human in over 30 years. No one has touched her. The caretakers here don't touch her. Her family doesn't touch her because it's this stigma of leprosy that you're going to get leprosy. Well, I did research on leprosy before I went to Ghana. You need to be with someone that has active leprosy daily for seven to 10 years to catch leprosy. These are cured lepers. They don't have it anymore. They just have the, the physical signs of it. But the power of the human touch and being with her or spending five minutes with a kid and reading a book or taking them on the beach and give you a million stories, that's where the greatest power comes in. And I, I couldn't do that if I was worried about putting food on the table here. I wouldn't be able to go there as many times as I do and do it. Um, so I guess time is good for the good it can do as well. So 500. When I came back, I said on my first trip, I said for the next 500 days, I'm not going to allow anything new to come into my life, anything. And I'm going to give away 90, give away or donate nine, that's the same thing, sell or donate 99% of everything that I own. And within 30 days or so, I got down to a wedding ring, a laptop, like the household furniture and stuff that we have, and a box of stuff that my kids had made me over the years. That was it. Everything else was gone. I had one of the largest Detroit Red Wings sports memorabilia collections, probably the largest Coke bottle collection in all of Canada. And it became so daunting to me. I, I was looking at my walls that were as at least this many walls, ceiling to floor Coke bottles the entire way. And I remember looking at them going, how the heck am I going to sell these? Like one at a time. So I phoned up a charity and I said, I have a Coke bottle collection. Can you come get it on Saturday and then do whatever you want with it? And these were my prized, like I had, and I didn't purchase any, like I didn't just go on eBay and buy these. This was 35 years of flea markets and, and shows collecting these bottles one by one. But it was the only way I knew to get rid of stuff. I couldn't do the stuff one by one. It would just take me forever. And I didn't want to open up an eBay store. So it was 30 days to get rid of 99% of everything that I own, including friends. There were friends I got rid of. There were boards of directors that I was on that I got rid of. I just wanted to simplify and focus on what was, in, what was most important to me. I didn't just, if I was on a board of directors, I said, you know, the term's up in six months, I'll be on it for another six months. Um, and then friends, if you just stop returning their calls or texts or emails, they'll figure it out really quickly. Most of my friends I kept, but there were just some that I went, I don't really like you, so I don't know why I'm continuing to hang around you. 
you know. So it wasn't just getting rid of physical things, it was getting rid of lots of stuff. And I found that less is more, and it allows you to focus on what's, what's really important. Because let's say Jason, who I think is here, if Jason's a really good friend of mine, which he is, but I'm spending four nights a month with people that I don't want to spend with, I'm really, I'm robbing our relationship. So it was a, it was a great thing. There wasn't a single thing that I look back now and go, man, I wish I would have kept that. There were a few things I took pictures of. I was a 1990 Ontario Monopoly champion. I know, three presidents. <laughs> so I took a picture of that plaque. I actually forgot I was, but we were, we're doing a games night here next week, and in our, our monthly meeting, you know, somebody said Monopoly. I'm like, Monopoly? I said, I won the Ontario Championship in 1990. And Suzanne said, you're such a dork. That was, that was her reply. It, was a, it, it started at Conestoga Mall. I was 12 or 13 years old. I was shopping with my mom, and I loved Monopoly. And I saw there was, there were, the tournament was starting that day, and I said, Mom, can I, can I enter this? It was 50 bucks to enter, and she entered me, and, and three days later, I'm at a final table with a, a guy in a tuxedo and destroyed him. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Won the Monopoly Championship at 13. And I never played a competitive game of Monopoly after that. That was it. Like, I was, I played a couple of times with my boys since then, but that was it. So, <laughs> this was a... It was telling me what was to come in the future. Um, money is money and ha these are kind of the rural villages I'm talking about here, but money is money and happiness is happiness. Uh, they're not related. They're, so they're related to a certain point. If you're homeless right now and you get a part-time job and you can rent a room somewhere, there's a lot of, there's measurable happiness there. And then you get a full-time job and you have your own place, measurable happiness. And then you get a promotion and you have your own car and you can afford groceries and you can afford all your stuff, measurable happiness, and then it's over. There is no more happiness after that. And it's about sixty-five or $70,000 a year is where there's, as family income, is where there's measurable happiness, and then it's over. It doesn't mean you can't do more stuff or buy fancier cars, you just can't be any happier. And a lot of people don't believe that. They think if I just made $300,000 a year, I would be happy, and it isn't true. Most of, or I'm gonna say the most miserable people I know make the most amount of money. And it isn't, I don't think, because they make the most amount of money, but it just it happens to be they're the most miserable people I know. And they all make a ton of money. They never see their kids. They never do what they want to do. They're just, they're stuck in this, in this, in this wheel. So you're going to, some of you aren't going to believe me, and you're going to go, no, I'm making 300000 now. If I made four fifty, I would be happy. It just isn't, it isn't true. You can drive nicer cars and, and live, live in bigger houses, but you're not going to be happy. Happiness is a choice. And if you don't believe it's a choice, then go to a third world country. They've just decided to be happy. It's not if I get another promotion or an iPhone 10 that I'm going to be happy. It just isn't. So my big why is to be a great husband and father, to serve the world and to help others. So my, I, it, it used to say to serve my community. Because even me, to a degree, I felt, why would you help a hungry person in China when there's hungry people in Cambridge? Like, why would you do that? Like, yeah, I even, I could, because sometimes I go, why do people think like that? But I think back and go, man, I kind of thought like that at one point. Well, it doesn't matter. They're a hungry person. What does it matter? A person's a person. It doesn't matter where they are. Um, and I could actually make a much stronger argument for helping a hungry person in China or Ghana than I could helping a hungry person in Kitchener. Because if you're hungry in Kitchener, it's your own fault. It really, unless you're a child, it's your own fault. If you want, now maybe you just don't have access to the resources, but I've worked in the, with the homeless in Kitchener Waterloo for 15 years. You can get a meal whenever you want to get a meal. 
it might not be the meal you want. It might be a hamburger and fries tonight or, or oatmeal or whatever, but there really is no excuse for being hungry as an adult if you're with it in Kitchener-Waterloo, where in Ghana, if you're hungry, you just remain hungry. There is no social programs to, to feed anybody at all. But I don't care where you're helping somebody, whether it's Ghana or Kitchener, it's the same thing to me. You're helping somebody and you're making a difference. My mom always says to me, she says, I can't, I can't give the way you do or I can't help the way that you do. I said, yes, you can. You, you, you do exactly what I do. Because she'll say, you know, I, I, found, I came across this homeless person and I gave them $2. I went, well, awesome. That's what I do. Yeah, but you, you, it doesn't matter, mom. You're doing it. It doesn't, doesn't matter what it is. You're, you're doing something. And it doesn't always have to be financial. It can be your time. I, I did uh, Out of the Cold for eight years. That program shut down two years ago. So I just went there every Monday night from ten, with Jason from 10 o'clock at night to 8 o'clock in the morning and just sat and talked with homeless people for 10 hours. And we watched movies and we ordered pizza and we did whatever. Now, I ordered pizza, so that cost a little bit of money. But other than that, it didn't require any money. It doesn't require money to help. You can just donate your time until you're in a position where you can't donate your money. But remember, you can't give away money that you don't have. So you want to attract it. Where should you invest? In my opinion, you should always invest in areas where you live and that you understand, no matter how good the deals might look in another city. So let's say you're, you wanna go look at um, Teeswater. That's okay, but get to know and understand Teeswater and what Teeswater makes it tick before you go invest in Teeswater. So maybe six years ago you said, I wanna invest in Houston. Texas. It's the middle of a desert. It's a, it's a desert. It's really nice. People like to live there. And then it floods. And you go, oh, they built the city in a dry lake basin. I didn't realize they did that. Well, no, you didn't because you live in Kitchener. That's why you didn't realize it. You just saw good opportunities on MLS that cash flow. So do you think you had flood insurance? You live in the desert. You didn't have flood insurance. So you lost all of your rental properties to a flood because you didn't know that the city was built in a dry lake. Why would, it, why would they build a city in like, You just don't know it because you're not there. So if you want to invest in Houston, that could be a great place to invest looking forward. Go to Houston. Know and, and, and understand the market rather than just blindly investing in Fort Myers, Florida because you heard somebody invest in Fort, or somebody that you know invest in Fort Myers, Florida. But I find it, it's always best if you can find something where you are because you can go to it, you can touch it. It's there, you can see it. Yeah. I had a lady here a few months ago that said she was investing in Portland and she owned 13 properties in Portland. And these properties were all like $70,000 and she put $20,000 down on all of them. So I phoned a real estate lawyer that I knew in Portland. She didn't own any properties. She just thought she did. It was a giant Ponzi scheme. So all of her money was gone. She didn't own any at, at all. She just trusted that what was happening over there was actually happening and it wasn't. And she was getting legal documents, but they were all fraudulent. There was, yeah, and that can happen. She didn't, she'd never been to Portland. She had never seen the city. She had never seen the property. She'd never met these, these investor guys that she was working with. Real estate is a most stable investment. It's accessible. Anyone can buy it. It increases in value over time. It can. It doesn't for sure, but it, it definitely can, and history says that it does. You can buy on margin and borrow against equity. It's rentable. It, it's improvable. It's deductible. There are a lot of great tax benefits for real estate investors. It's stable. For the most part, it's very stable. It's slow to rise and slow to fall. And it's livable. 
So my investment journey, I had started, uh, I, actually I was at, on Uplands Drive yesterday in a house and it backs onto St. Paul's school where I went to grade school. And I, I said to the homeowner, I was at the house, he said, I remember looking up at these houses and I go, what do you got to do to own one of these? Because they're really big, they're really big houses and they're really impressive. And I lived in a, a semi-detached house and was very happy, didn't want for anything. But I went, why do some people live in houses that look like castles? Like, what, what, what is it? And it just got me intrigued to, to figure out what these people do and how, and how do they do it. So I started reading books on investing at a very young age, probably 10 or 11. And I got my first real job at Wendy's. I called that a real job. I was doing penny saver and stuff before that. And then I started investing my money. So I was, I was earning roughly $850 a month and I was investing 800 of it. And I did a graph and thought, if, my in, if the investments went up 10 to 12% a year, because that's what all the books said in the stock market goes up every year, every year consistently, I would have $11,000 at the end of my first year, realize that this would take forever in order to obtain any wealth, because I'm 14, I'm 14 years old right now. So I was gonna be uh, 40 years before I'd have nine and a half million. Well, the number obviously blew me away. I thought you could, have, you could buy the entire planet for nine and a half million. So I wasn't concerned about the amount of money. What I was concerned with was the 30 or 40 years that it was gonna take me to get there, because those were my grandparents at the time. So I thought, well, I don't wanna be almost dead. That's what I thought at the time. <laughs> like 12 years from there now, but at the time I thought, these people are almost dead. Well, why would you want money when you're almost dead? So how could I accelerate that and get somewhere quicker? So one of the concepts I learned about was leverage. If I took out a $130,000 loan and the payments on that loan were $800 a month, at the end of the same 40-year period, I'd have $13.5 million rather than $9.5 million. And the reason was that I had 130 invested from day one. So if the markets went up 10% the first year, my investments would grow to 143,000. And then that compounding over time would give me an extra $4 million. So that was very exciting. There's, there's no question. I went, wow, this is, this is brilliant. I didn't come up with it, but it's brilliant. But I still had to make that $800 payment every month. Is, I, and I remember, I, I remember asking myself this question, is there an investment like that where somebody else will make the payment? I remember that thought continually coming in my head. Can someone else make this payment for me? Like, is there a way for me to earn enough even from the investment to make the payment? How can I do it where I don't, want to, where I don't make that payment? And I stumbled across real estate in one of these books that I read. I'm like, wow, I can buy a piece of property and a complete stranger will make the payment every month. That's crazy. When it's kind of, it's too good to be true. Yeah, and I know there's times where they don't pay and you got fixed. Like, I, I get all that stuff. But I went, for the most part, they just want a nice place to live, a nice person to deal with, and a fair rent. And if you can meet that, that's really all you need to meet. And they will pay for your property for you. And if the property value goes up, I was going to say they don't want any of it. They might. They're not going to get any of it. And if they pay the mortgage down, they also don't get any of it. You get to keep it all. That's pretty crazy. You know, and like now I think I'm the smartest person in the world. I didn't come up with it, but I'm the smartest person in the world. And it, remember, I'm, I'm young. I'm 14 or 15 years old, so I can't. Limiting factor, I guess, because I just said I can't. That house I was at on Uplands, the 14-year-old said to me, how can I get into three properties before my 16th birthday? The 12-year-old looked at me and said, I'd like to start a REIT. And I went, what? <laughs> it's a real estate investment trust. I'm like, you want to start a REIT? <laughs> You're 12 years old. So 
I guess just I wasn't thinking big enough at that age. I thought it was impossible to buy a house at, at 14. Well, it isn't if you have parents that can help you. Like that kid's going to be able to buy a house. But when the 12-year-old wants to start a REIT and the 14-year-old wants to know how he can buy two houses before he's 16. But I didn't think it was possible. And I think if I would approach my parents with that at 16, they would have said that I was crazy. Are you still here? Would yeah, you have said crazy? I would have said that. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So then I looked at the math on it, and, and these numbers aren't the numbers from back then, but to make it a little more real today. Let's say you bought a, a condo for $400,000 and you put 20% down, and you have a mortgage of $320,000 and the rent is 1800 and all the expenses are 1900 Well, most of us would look at that and go, that makes no sense. You're losing $100 a month. That's how most people would approach that. That's how most investment planners would look at that. And I'm not telling you to go out there and look for properties that are losing money. But I would buy that property all day long, like w without question. If I, could get into a prop if I could get into a property that's losing $100 a month in a single family situation, I would say, give me as many of those as I qualify for. Because here's how I, I approached it and still do. Let's assume the value of the property goes up 2.5% a year. I think over time, that's a pretty conservative average. A lot of stuff you're going to read will say 4 to 6%. Well, at the end of the first year, the value of my property is now 410000 not 400000 I lost $1,200 in monthly cash flow, I gained $10,000 in price appreciation, and the mortgage was paid down by $4,000. So I had $14,000 in gains, $1,200 in monthly losses on paper. My net worth grew by $13,000 on a property that's losing money. So I would look at that and go, how can I do 10 of those, and 20 of those, and 50 of those? That's just how my brain would, would look at that. Whereas most, many people would look at it and go, it's losing $100 a month. Now if the $100 loss means that you can't buy groceries, you would never do that. That wouldn't make any, you would wait until you found something that, that, that didn't lose money. But I'm also giving you, you permission to do something like this if it makes sense to you. Because the advisors that you're talking to might say, don't do that, it's losing $100 a month. And that's probably good advice that they're doing it. I just look at it differently. And you might be two or three years from now going, man, I wish I would have done something. Like I, I know it was losing 100, but I wish I would have done something because now the property value is up 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever. So what if, yeah, actually I'm gonna go to this one first and then go back. If that property right now is renting for $1,800 a month, here's what can happen over time. If the rent increases at 1.5% per year, which I think is pretty safe to say it will over time, your rent 10 years from now is $2,100 a month or if it increased at 3.5% annually, it's $2,500 a month. Yet your fixed expenses, they would have marginally gone up because property taxes and everything goes up. But you see over time, you're probably not losing money anymore. I, I bought 10 townhouses in a particular area in 2000, at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. All of them were losing 50 to $100 a month. They're not anymore. Uh, almost 12 years later, they're not. Because rents have gone up every year, and I'm in a very good position on those properties now, and that's because time happened. So let's say you took out a loan for an RSP, and it was the loan was 250,000 to invest in your RSPs, and the monthly payments were $1,400 a month. And the bank said, because you've been such a great customer, we're gonna make $1,300 of that payment, and you have to make the other $100 payment. Would you take that loan? We, we would, you get $250,000 in your RSPs. At the end of the day, that loan's gonna be paid for, and your RSPs are gonna be worth whatever they're worth. They may have increased, they may have decreased, yeah, we would all take that loan. That's kind of, that's real estate to me. It just is. 
You know how many investors call me three years later, five years later, eight years later and go, yeah, we just want to sell that, that Thanos. You know, the, the numbers are just so tight on it every month and, you know, they're tighter than we thought they were going to be and we're only making $12 a month or we're, or we're losing $43 a month. And I went, yeah, you paid two twenty for that, remember? Yeah, it's worth four seventy five. Yeah, it's just not working, is it? No, it's working. <laughs> it's totally working. Well, yeah, I know, but the cash flow, I'm like, the cash flow every month, what are you talking about? It went up a quarter of a million dollars, was paid down by 50000 Like, is it that you can't afford the $20 a month? Is that, well, no, we just like a little bit more cash flow. Like, okay. The, the amount of people that I talk into keeping their stuff is, like, I have to, they're calling me over to sell it. I'm a realtor, and I go, no, don't sell it. Don't sell it. Don't sell it. I remember this couple, uh, five years ago, came to me to, I... They had bought four rental properties with me, no money down, because you could in 2007, 2008, whatever it was. And they made $65,000 as a couple and could buy four townhouses with no money down. The rules were just different. So for, for you know, investors that I was working with, I would say take advantage of this. You know, if you can and you have enough behind you, take advantage of it. So this couple did, they bought four. And then five years ago when they went to get divorced, they called me and they said, we want to sell these. And I went, my advice would be open up a joint bank account and never sell these properties because you will never own real estate ever again the rest of your lives. They now make $70,000 combined. So the odds of them ever qualifying for anything else ever again are very, very slim. And I said, if you sell these properties, you're only going to walk away with sixty dollars or $70,000 each for selling four properties because they were leveraged at 100% and then there were 8% CMHC fees added on and, and penalties and everything else. They weren't walking away with a lot. 140000 for selling four rental properties. And they, they phoned me the other day and they said, it's been life-changing for us. We're now millionaires. We actually get along better now that we're divorced than we ever did. And we've never had an argument about the properties. And, and it, it'll just secure their future now because they didn't sell them. But it, it, it's, it's because of the type of properties that, that I tend to buy and that I invest a lot of, or, or tell a lot of clients to invest in. They're so boring that nothing happens that... They just get bored with them over time and they go, well, I want to go to do something exciting. You know? I had a friend that sold three rental properties that I sold them and opened up a real estate company. And I went, you did what? <laughs> like, really? You had like a cash for life lottery and you traded that for a job? Like, I, it, was just, it, was just, it was just crazy to me that, that that person did that. When that was like their, their guaranteed future. So what's going to happen over time? Or I had one two years ago that opened up a restaurant. Uh, and it was like a neat, I'm a vegan, but it was like a niche vegetarian vegan type restaurant. And I said, don't do that. Like that's really, really, a really bad idea. Like 97% of restaurants fail. And I'm gonna say closer to 100% of the restaurant you're trying to open up fails. It just does. And they, all the money from the rental properties went into leasehold improvements on a, on a restaurant that's not there anymore because they, they couldn't make any, any money doing it. It's okay to invest in boring stuff that works over time. So over time, let's say you bought a property today for 400,000 and you put $80,000 down, 25 years from now, the home's likely worth at least 400,000. It's gonna be very weird things have to happen for that home to, to go down in value over, four, over 25 years. If the value increased by 2.5%, the property would be worth 741,000 and at 4% it would be worth a million. So that was $80,000 turned into either 400 if the value didn't go up, 741 if it went up by 2.5%, or a million if it went up 4%. And a lot more than that if the property value went up more. 
So when I'm buying a piece of real estate, I assume the value is never going to go up. And I still buy real estate. I go, well, that makes sense to me. My 80 will turn into 400. That's really cool. Maybe it's not the greatest rate of return, but it's a rate of return. Could you put $80,000 into, into Apple stock today and say, in 25 years, that's 400 for pretty much for sure? You can't. It could be. It could be worth $20 million. I, I look at real estate and say it's kind of the downside to me over time is a GIC. You get the return of a GIC. And, and the upside is a very lucrative, high-risk stock. There's not, a ton of, there's not a ton of risk in real estate over time. There still is risk, but not a ton. So I was teaching a class at St. Mary's High School last year, and, a, and a, I was talking about refinancing to the group. And one of the kids said, what's refinancing? And then one of the teachers said, never heard the word before, what's refinancing? And I went, well, if you guys, maybe a lot of people I talk to don't know what refinancing is either. So if you bought a, a property today for 400000 and you put $80,000 down, and we have a mortgage amount of 320000 seven years from now, if the value is now five hundred and your mortgage has been paid down to two fifty. We can refinance up to 80% of the current value, which would be 400, giving us a mortgage of 400, minus the 250 that you already owe, and you'd have $150,000 in equity that you could pull from that property to do another property, hopefully another property. That's what refinancing means. And this is where it starts to get fun and cool over time, when you can start using the equity from your property to buy more property. Here is a little graph on one of the properties that I purchased. So I bought this triplex for 163,000. This was 2002, and it wasn't 163,000 because it was 2002. Well, partly it was, but it was 163,000 because it was disgusting, and none of us in this room would live in it. And actually, my biggest criteria for it wasn't then. This was my very. This was my. I purchased real estate before this investment properties. This was my first on purchase investment purchase. So I didn't have this criteria at the time, but my criteria now, and has been for at least 15 years, is I won't buy anything that I wouldn't move my wife and kids into. I wouldn't. Now, I will buy condos on North Lake, on Greenfield, on Overly. These are 700 square foot condos. Well, I did live in one of those with my wife, but I would move my family in there in a second. It's not saying I'm going to, but I would. I would live at 35 Green Valley or 55 Green Valley or a lot of these complexes that I buy in, I would totally move my family. So when I say that I have to live there, it doesn't mean it has to be a detached home somewhere. It just has to be somebody. This is not a property that it would move my family into. It isn't, and I don't own it anymore. But I bought this for 163,000. Three years later, I refinanced it and took out $85,000 in equity. And the, the, how I created a equity there in such a short period of time is I renovated all three units and rented them out for a much higher rent. And that in turn increased the value of the property. I was able to access that equity and that was the equity. In year three, I bought, a con or I bought three condos with that money. Those were three of the condos on North Lake Drive that I bought from the realtor. Uh, year five, I refinanced that condo and took out 65000 in equity. And in that time period there, the rents hadn't gone up. I didn't do any improvements to those condos. It's just that there were comparable sales now selling for higher. So I got an appraisal on mine and was able to access that equity. In year five, I purchased two condos with that money from that refinance. Year six... I refinanced that triplex again that I had refinanced um, two years after I bought it. And the reason I was able to access equity here wasn't that the value went up, because it actually didn't in those three years. It was kind of, values were flat. And they were flat on that because I hadn't really increased the rents in three years. It's just that the mortgage had been paid down by 28000 that I was able to access that $28,000. That, that's how I got that. 
in year seven, I sold that triplex and that's really because it no longer fit the type of property that I like to own. Not that there's anything wrong with triplexes. The person that bought that property is a police officer and that's all they buy is triplexes. Not because they're a police officer, just they love triplexes. It's just their niche and that's okay. I didn't sell it because I didn't like it. Or, no, I sold it because I didn't like it. I didn't sell it because there was something wrong with it. And I bought two townhouses with that money. And in this example here, it was eight homes from simply making one purchase and $35,000 investment. It was actually a $35,000 cash investment. And then I also took 30 or $35,000 off a line of credit I had, turned into 1.2 million in real estate in eight years. And the reason I point out stories like this is let's say I was an individual and I was very successful in my career and I had an extra $80,000 a year in surplus income and I bought a property with it. Well, neato, anybody can do that. Just go make another 80,000. Well, how do you just go make another 80,000? That, that isn't me and it, and it isn't what I've done. I have used my properties to acquire more properties. I haven't invested any money in real estate, like of, of money I've earned through my job in probably 18, 17 or 18 years. I've used any money of my own money. I've used money from properties. So this is teachable. It doesn't mean that this is gonna, this might take you 100 years to do this. It might take you two years, it might take you five months, I have no idea. It just, nothing is possible if you don't make that first purchase. You have to make that first purchase in order for anything to go anywhere. I, I, got, I had a kid come to me, when I say kid, he was, 21 or 22 years old and he started buying student apartment like student buildings near the university eight or ten years ago at three four five million dollars a piece 100% financed so he just found he had some family backers that would back him and then found people to put seconds on them and when he sold them he probably walked away with 14 million at 24 years old because the market went up now it could have gone the other way like very easily could have gone the other way. It just didn't, and he was he was lucky. But you know, he did a hundred times what I did in real estate in, in just a couple of years, which was kind of cool. I have a client right now that sells YouTube and Facebook likes. I went, what do you sell? <laughs> so he, he netted like three and a half million last year. He just lives at home with his parents. He's using that money and he's buying real estate with it. I said, you gotta explain this to me because I don't understand that business at all. And he said, well, you, you think that YouTube views and Facebook likes are real. So if somebody's got 18,000 likes, you actually think 18,000 people liked it. And I said, well, kind of, yeah. He goes, oh no. Sometimes that's the case. But let me give you a couple examples. So a mother has a cute kid and she wants that cute kid to get on Ellen. Well, how does a cute kid get on Ellen? They need 40 million views on YouTube. They're not going to get on Ellen. Well, maybe there's other ways, but you know what I mean. That's how a kid would get noticed by something. So the mother will approach me. And, and say, I'd like 40 million views on this video that I just posted on YouTube, how much? And he'll say it's $30,000 and I'll get you 40 million views. He then emails 40 million people in his database to click on the video for like a microsecond. And then he takes that 30,000 and he keeps 15 and gives the other 15,000 to the people that clicked on the video. And they get it in a little spending account that they can go buy stuff on eBay or, or whatever. And I went, oh, wow. cool. <laughs> yeah. Or I went, wow, like stupid me. You know, <laughs> I'm slugging it out every day and you're selling YouTube views. Um, or, uh, or, or Aerosmith comes out with a new song and wants 100 million views of that new song on YouTube. You can just buy the views. 
So they're legitimate views, like, well, they're not. They're legitimate clicks. Like, it, it's actually somebody clicking on it. But I went, oh my goodness, what a, what a different world. I never, never thought of it. Now, he said, it's going to end. So there's going to be programs. It's going to end. I'm not stupid. I'll, I'll think of something else. But that's why I'm taking this money and he's buying real estate with it, which is really smart. Because he knows it's, it's going to end. But there'll be, there'll be something else. It's crazy. You sell YouTube views. I saw real estate. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. So what to buy, single family or multifamily, which is better? And I always say to this, it depends. It depends on your situation. It depends on where you are. It depends on how much money you have. But let's say you bought a sixplex last year for 500,000 that's renting for $5,000 a month. And 10 years from now, it's still renting for 5,000 a month, which is actually the case in most cases. People don't increase their rents because they don't want the tenants to leave and whatever. The problem with that is eventually they'll never leave because the rents are so low that they'll never leave. So I, I have that situation in six of those townhouses in that block of 10 that I bought that are original tenants. If they're gonna rent a house, I will have them the rest of my life because they can't go anywhere else. They just can't. It's, it's gonna be 500 more a month minimum to rent that product somewhere else. So that's part of being a landlord. There are times where you're gonna win and there are times where you're gonna lose. So you can do the scummy thing and kick those tenants out and say that a family member is moving in or all that stuff that people do, or you just go, that's just part of the game. That's just is what it is. Increase the rents by 3% a year like you can and it is what it is. So that's the approach that I've taken with it, but they're not gonna leave. They're going to be there for the rest of their lives if they wanna rent. Now if they get married or something and wanna buy a house, then they're gonna leave. And I'm just hoping that they, like, I don't want them to leave and I do want them to leave in the, in the same breath. So assuming you maintain that property, it hasn't gone up in value at all. It's still worth a half a million dollars. The pros are there's one of everything to service, lower cost per unit typically, usually, usually more cash flow. They require larger down payments. They're harder than single family to sell and you can't liquidate part of the property if you need cash in a, in a multi. In a single family, if you bought something today for 275 and it's renting for $1,400 a month, well, 10 years from now, if you're still renting it for $1,400 a month, the home is worth whatever the market has gone up or down. No bearing on value. Now, if you had a 20-year lease signed with that tenant, of course, there's some impact on value. But if it's just a regular lease where the new owner could, could evict that tenant, it doesn't impact it at all. So I bought a, I had a, a, a woman in our lives that was living in government subsidized housing in a really rough area of town and had two young girls. And... I went up to her one day and said, would you like to move from where you are? She said, I'd love to, but I can't afford any more than $800 a month or whatever her rent was. And I said, how would you like to live in a new home? She said, I'd love to live in a new home. I said, perfect. Let's go shopping for a new home, like a new townhouse. Here's the price range that you can look in. We'll go to these different builders and find an area that you like and I'll buy it. And your rent is going to be $800 a month and we'll get you in a better living situation. So I want to tell you that, um, the best investments you'll ever make don't yield you the financial return or they might give you some financial return but that orphanage that i bought in in ghana that was a, over a couple hundred thousand canadian is the best investment i ever made and it doesn't yield a financial return and it's okay you can make a financial investment without yielding a financial return i'm giving you permission to do that but here's how this story ended up so one day she actually got married and they wanted to go look for a home on their own and I said, well, great. You know, it's been great having you here. And, and they moved out. And then I sold it. And 
then I took the proceeds. Do you think the buyer cared what I was renting it for? They didn't care. They were going to move into it and, and live in it. And I used, it, it didn't quite cover it, but I used a lot of the money from that sale to then buy the, the orphanage in, in Ghana, which is just kind of cool how that, that happened. You know? If you do good, good comes back to you. So property management. This is something that I, I, don't, I don't have any interest in any property management company out there, but it's something that I wish I would have done right from the beginning is hired a property manager rather than doing it myself. And I did it myself for, 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 for a number of years. And quick story, I'll pick on Curtis in the back of the room. If Curtis is my tenant and I go to the door and say, Curtis, it's the third of the month, you know, where's the, I didn't get the rent check in the mail. And Curtis says, well, you know, my, my spouse beat me up yesterday and, and took the money. Well, I'm a human being, so I'll go, I'm very sorry that happened to you. I'll come back in, how long do you need? 10 days? I'll come back, I'll come back in 15 days. And then I come back in 15 days and it's some other excuse. And I go, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll come back again in 15 days. That was me, for sure. I just, I don't know how, you, how I would do anything else. I'm just, I'm, I'm a human and I have compassion for him. Now, if it's the property manager and the property manager says, hey, Curtis, I'm here to collect the rent. Well, you know, my spouse beat me up and took the money. I'll have it in um, 10 days. Well, actually, here's an eviction notice, and it actually gives you 15 days to pay. So it gives you another five days. Like, I don't want to give this to you, but, you know, I have a boss, and it's just my job. But you're going to pay in 10 days, so it voids it anyway. Um, but here, sorry about what happened to you. Well, a property manager can do that. I can't do that. Maybe you can. I just, I cannot hand that piece of paper to somebody that just told me they got beat up. Whether they did or not, I, I just can't do that. A property manager can. They keep it separate, and their emotions are not involved. And why do you want to know everything you need to know about investing in real estate for one property to save 50 or 80 or $100 a month? Now, some people like it and they have the time to do it, and that's okay. I wasn't one of those people. I wanted to just do my, the job that I do, and I have my family, and I didn't, want to worry about, I didn't want to worry about all of that stuff. Statistically, the investors that have their properties managed own more, own more properties and have higher net worth, which it makes sense. Because if you have two properties and it's causing you two or three phone calls a month, you don't want a third and a fourth and a tenth property because you don't want 30 phone calls a month. So I, like, I, I get the logic behind it. Mortgage financing is also, this is something that I happen to do, but if you're talking to somebody else or you're in a different market, some of the questions that I would ask whoever you're dealing with, just some basic questions would be, what rental offset do you use and what D, what's your DCR? So DCR is debt coverage ratio. And if the person looks at you and thinks you just spoke French, you're 100% in the wrong place. Those are very basic, very basic questions. Or let me check with my manager, wrong answer. I would just leave <laughs> and go deal with somebody else. You want to deal with people that, that understand your language and can look at your situation right now and set things up properly to allow you to do other stuff down the line that you might not even be thinking of right now, rather than just looking at this simple transaction. A common example that, that I get come in my office, this is one from a few months ago. A woman came in and had $50,000 in her bank account for a down payment on a condo and she wanted to buy a condo. She had her house free and clear and she had a relatively low income. So she said, well, I went and saw my bank and my bank said I should use my cash to buy the condo and then if I want to buy another one down the road, I'll do a line of credit on my house and then I can use that money to buy another one. And I said, what bank? And she said, ABC Bank. And I said they won't do the line of credit for you the second you close on the condo you don't qualify for a line of credit there anymore and she said why didn't the lady that i was talking with tell me that because she doesn't know 
That's why she told you that. So I'm telling you right now, if you email the manager there and say, can you just plug in my numbers? If I own a condo at this and it's renting for this and the mortgage is this, how much of a line of credit do I qualify for? And they just flip me the answer. And he replied back, zero. I said, yeah, zero. If had you gone ahead with that, you wouldn't be able to do another property. If we do the line of credit first before you buy a property, it's sitting there. Now you can use it down the road if you want to use it. But it takes somebody to look at it that's an investor rather than somebody that's just quoting you a rate on a, on a five-year term. So where do I get the money to get started? I will end at 7.30, which is in three minutes, whether you like it or not. Because <laughs> I have to coach a basketball team at 7.45. Uh, but if you have any questions, you can always email me and I, I will answer them. So you could refinance your current property, personal savings, or one of my favorites is to buy a rental as your very first purchase. So let's say that you own, let's say that you qualify right now to buy a $750,000 house and it's your first home. I don't know why people want to buy at their max at the, on the first home. It's, you know, people grow up in, in Deer Ridge in their parents' house and they want a lateral move for their first house. Like you're 24 years old, why does it need to be Deer Ridge for your first house? You know, what if you bought a $350,000 condo for your first place rather than the $750,000 house and lived in there for five months or six months or two years and then bought another house with 5% down? Because you can, assuming you qualify, you're not, you're not, you're going to, you're not limited to buying one property with 5% down. You can buy multiple, multiple properties if you qualify with 5% down. Where if you buy that one for 750, you're probably not gonna save up enough now to buy a rental. It's just never, it's just never gonna happen. So that would be my advice to you if you don't own a home right now or if you're giving advice to your kids, buy your first house as a rental. Because you can buy a rental with 5% down, isn't that cool? You're not, you're living in it, but you know it's going to be a rental someday. And then you buy another house to live in with 5% down and you know that's going to be a rental someday. You can actually buy rental properties with 5% down as long as they're owner occupied to begin with. So putting this all together, these are the people that you need to help support your purchases. If you get a good property manager and a, and a good realtor and a good mortgage broker, they can take care of a lot of these for you. Because for you to go out there and find the best painter and the best electrician and the best carpenter and the best... That can take a long time to put that network together. I would tap into somebody that has a network right now, and then maybe you want to piece out some stuff as time goes on and find your own painter, but tap into the resources that other people have. So putting everything together, you're not going to know everything you need to know about investing in real estate because you listen to me talk for an hour and a half. What you need to do is set a goal. Your goal right now might be you want to buy property two years from now, a year from now. Your goal might be you want to meet with whoever brought you here within the next 60 days and put a plan together, set a goal to do something because if you don't, nothing's going to happen. You'll remember this talk six months and six years from now going, man, I wish I would have at least done something. I, would have, I wish I would have investigated something. Rather than sitting there going, I don't qualify for anything, I can't do anything, you, you might, you just never know. So set a goal. I had a goal once to run a marathon, which is 42 miles, too many. Uh, and the it really was the training program for it was 1,565 um, kilometers. I just found one online, and that's how many kilometers I had to run before I ran a marathon. If I got home at midnight and had 13 miles to run, I would run on the treadmill for an hour or 10 hours, whatever it took. But I was very focused on not dying when I crossed the finish line. That was my only goal. I just wanted to not die. I think you can tell from the time there, four hours and 41 minutes. It's not the fastest marathon that's ever been run. <laughs> but but I, did, I did cross the, the finish line. 
funny, as I reached the halfway point, uh, Ken, I heard the, the sirens and the everything, like, everything, I'm like, what, what is going on? I just, like, and it was an hour and 50 minutes for me to do half of it. A Kenyan had finished the race at 150. <laughs> I went, oh my goodness, he'd done the whole thing. <laughs> Crazy. So start as soon as you can and consider making your first home, your first investment property. So if you were to buy something now versus starting in 10 years, and this could be two years, but that'd be the difference in, in purchase price. If you just, well, I'm going to wait and save up more down payment. You often can't save greater than the houses are appreciating for, for a lot of us. I wrote a book a number of years ago called The Millionaire Father that I never talked about. And I had a gentleman in the front row uh, a year, a year and a half ago. And I started mentoring him a little bit, and he said, you know, how can I, how can I thank you for, for your advice and stuff? I said, I don't know, what do you do for a living? And he said, I record uh, books on iTunes. And I went, oh, I have a book. Uh, let's do that. So now I have my book on Audible and iTunes and all those different platforms. If you download that book, it's eight or ten bucks, depending on where you go. Apple takes 30% of it, and then the other 70% goes directly to Possibilities International, which is the organization I go with to Africa. So now I don't mind talking about it because there's no money in it for me. But I had a hard time saying, you know, go buy my book for 10 bucks or 20 bucks. I find that very annoying. So if you, if you want to thank me in any way, you can do that. You can download it on your phone, and I get none of it. So this is the beginning if you take action. If not, it will be the end. I, I'm going to call my dad up here for a second. I am going to run out because I have to. I have 13 minutes to get to Rim Park. Basketball. Yeah. See you later. So thank you. Spontaneous Thank you. Thank you. And give me as many likes and comments. In fact, I've already got a like. Oh, I guess I liked it. And I guess there's a comment. It was mine. But anyways, if you could, Jim Reitzel, uh, what, are we, what is it? Uh, on Facebook, you just do my name, Jim Reitzel, and let's get, let's get that up there that we can maybe get three likes by the end of the year, okay? That'd be awesome. One concept that we've thought about lately, and I'd just like to share, and I realize we're at the time, and is um, you've won the lottery. So the people that are in here that own a home, you've won a lottery. And we struggled with year, for years talking to people about how they can make more money with real estate. And I, I guess we understand real estate investing, but what we found is over the last 20, 25 years, it's $1,200 to $1,500 a month. Your home has gone up in value if you own something. And we just it, it's just relentless. It's $1,200 to $1,500 a month. So if you're living in a home right now and you go to sell that to move into another home, you really don't win anything, do you? But now that home's gonna go up twelve or fifteen hundred dollars a month. But if you stayed in the home and found some way of buying a second home, which is what he's talking about, now you're twenty four hundred to three thousand dollars a month. That's how the rich do it. My dad was a bus driver. Nobody ever talked to us about investment real estate. Until one day we just bumped into it and went, oh my goodness, we've got to start talking to people. So that's, that's how you've won the lottery with a home that you're in already, and you can do it again. That's what this concept is. Okay, so thanks for coming out, and uh, have a great evening. And don't forget, Yeah, we're on the right path. Yeah. 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 Ye
Thanks, man. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs>